0: Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh Chernovoy, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Netflix's All Quiet on the Western Front. Join me today, The Rewind's World War One movie correspondent, Fred Cobb. Fred, thank you for being here.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. A little bummed. I was uh, super sure I was going to win that $2 billion jackpot this morning and then it didn't quite happen. So now I have to return that BMW that I already bought. So I'm kind of upset about that. But other than that great to be here as always
0: i mean like you don't need to like you know bring more bad vibes into this thing fred we're already talking about like a very really depressing event in history and we just finished talking about the election for 30 minutes before we started talking but it's okay well i think being around a job
1: of setting the table is what you're saying right (laughs) yeah
0: sure 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 i think hopefully being around adam and i can cheer you up and that's and that's our other guest, adam adam lichtenstein adam how's it going
2: Uh, i'm doing i'm doing pretty good and you know i saw the guy won the powerball today and like frankly you get two billion. You know, you win two billion dollars, but like then after taxes, it's only like a billion. And what's the point then?
0: Yeah, not 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 even really enough to buy a. Well, actually, you can probably buy like a hockey team, maybe like, and that's about it. You know, not can't even buy a pro sports franchise at that point. Yeah, you know, just, no baseball
2: know. teams, no football teams. It's, it's really it's
0: really not it's it's really not enough money to really be happy. It's just enough to like just like make you like complacent, and not know what to do with yourself. Really, just a curse. Yeah, I would um, I would
1: hate to have a
2: billion dollars. Well- Nobody give me a billion dollars. <laughs>
1: It is definitely enough money to buy a home abroad, which I think we could all use after this election tonight, if we want to leave the country so would have been very or useful.
2: A, or a home period in the insane housing market and, of South Florida. One yeah, home, only one. Yeah, Adam
0: has been, uh, you know, uh, searching for a house for some time now in South Florida. and where we just our state just reelected a very popular governor and i'm like you know what if you want to earn those popularity numbers mr governor how about you like make it affordable to buy a house here that would be uh something you know maybe actually worth the amount that he's winning the state by but you know this is a this is a movie podcast not a politics podcast so let's just talk about a uh just a totally uncontroversial
2: event in history instead world war one the the Uh, distinctly unpolitical all quiet on the western front
0: (laughs) yes uh, all Quiet on the Western Front is, you know, uh, it's 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 based on like a, a, a like a, I think a 1928 novel. It was made into a movie in 1930 that won the Best Picture at the third ever uh, Academy Awards. Uh, and then, you know, they, they, I think there's another TV movie remake in the 70s. And then, honestly, up until like I saw like a a post on twitter about it like about a day before adam mentioned doing this to me I had no idea netflix was putting a bunch of resources into make remaking such a classical film but that is what they did uh it it, it tells the story of um it, it mostly follows a young uh Young seventeen-year-old uh, German named Paul Boimer who uh, forges his parents' signature to be able to enlist, enlist in the German Imperial German Army during World War One with a bunch of his classmates, which they do three years into the war before people realize just how not so well the war is going. But not long after actually making it to the battlefront, they realize, hey, this war thing, not really all fun and glory, and, and there's a lot of other things here that are, you know, just like, hey, maybe not quite all as cracked up to be when we thought we were just doing the honorable thing for our country and we were going to all be heroes and they're faced with the harsh realities of war. Uh, but you know, kind of in another in kind of in another section in the film, in addition to, you know, following Paul in the Um, in the people he comes across. We're also following a kind of a a German uh, politician or, um, you know, bureaucrat of some sorts played by Daniel Brühl. His name's uh, Matthias Erzberger. Uh, He is trying to kind of urge a lot of the other higher-ups in the German army once he sees things are just not really going that well and the writing's on the wall. Like, hey, let's just kind of negotiate an armistice here with all these French folks. And we kind of cut back and forth a little bit between him and the battlefront uh, as they're trying to negotiate that. But we're also just seeing just how bad way things are going. Uh, Fred, I kind of I joked before, as I keep joking, because just you just keep happening to do a lot of podcasts that are about World War One. And while Amsterdam was a little more tangentially about it, you were just here a couple of weeks ago to do that. This is obviously much more focused on World War One. You uh, did the 1917 podcast with us in early 2020 after that movie came out in 2019, and a lot of others. And I mean, there've been and there've been other World War One movies in the past, in addition to other versions of this movie. And uh, I'm so I'm I guess I'm the first where I wanted to kind of start this podcast was like I mean I think and I haven't, I haven't actually consumed a ton of the criticism of this movie. One podcast I listened to was kind of like, Hey, did this actually like kind of like merit its own movie? Did it do enough to distinguish itself from the other ones, which I mean, it's a fair discussion to have, even if like I actually do have some pretty positive things to say about this movie that I do think make it stand apart. But I want to start with you as someone that went and did your homework. You went and watched the Academy award-winning movie. You've talked about all these other world war one movies with me, and you probably know more about world war one history than I do. So I'm kind of curious, uh, with all the context you have for it now what did 2022's all quiet on the western front do to like stand on its own and kind of warrant this investment and resources from netflix and the time of any of the viewers that have tuned in why did this movie kind of like justify its existence what's the biggest reason it was able to do that
1: right so in principle i do not have any objections about remakes Mm -hmm. That said, I think this was a particularly gutsy one to make because, as you mentioned already, the original is uh, an absolute classic in American film history. Uh, You mentioned already that it won the Best Picture Oscar back in 1930. And Steven Spielberg proved that you can remake the Best Picture Oscar winner. He was very successful with West Side Story last year. Maybe Um, not so much commercially, but
0: critically, he was.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say that that remake justified itself. Mm -hmm. And that's difficult. Uh, On the other hand, you are remaking a movie that came out literally almost a century ago. Mm -hmm. And I think that in itself uh, makes it a good candidate for a bit of an upgrade. And I think it's really important here that we look a little bit at the backstory of All Quiet on the Western Front because it is actually very important for why a movie like this is getting made in 2022. Mm -hmm. When the book was published in the late 20s in Germany by a guy named Erich Maria Remark, it was extremely successful in the United States. Um, It really hit a chord with veterans uh, who came back home traumatized with PTSD uh, and had a hard time reintegrating into society. And that's why Hollywood jumped right on it and made a movie just a year later. In Germany, the book was not so successful or popular, primarily because there was still a lot of anger about how the war had ended. Uh, And there was also a guy around that time whom you may have heard of named Hitler, who was (laughs) giving a whole bunch of speeches in beer halls and really just getting people fired up about all of those traitors that let the country down 10 years ago, that it's unacceptable and that something needs to be done to bring back that old patriotic Germany that uh, he thinks that the country should be.
0: By traitors, he means the guys that actually negotiated the armistice in this movie, basically, the guys that just threw
2: in the towel. That is correct.
1: That is correct. The people who sold the country out and who gave everything away and essentially wasted the sacrifices that those brave, patriotic German young men made in the trenches. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that is important is that – this is the first ever german adaptation of this book it's an attempt i think to an extent by the country to reckon with its past from the first half of the 20th century because now they actually have the opportunity to do so i think it's very fitting that it's the official submission by the germans for next year's oscars for the international feature category Um, Which brings me to the second point for why I think it's very appropriate for them to make this movie now. Uh, That's because there's actually a war going on in Europe right now for the very first time in quite a while, in Ukraine. And I do think that there are a lot of parallels to be made in the sense that when it comes down to it, war is always being fought by people who didn't get a say in actually starting that war, that it's made by people who don't actually have to bear the brunt of those choices who get to sit at home in comfort still eat nice food uh, while people are actually dying uh, who didn't volunteer for any of that and that's why i think that you can definitely draw some parallels to all quiet uh, on the western front uh, coming out 100 years ago and now this remake coming out in 2022 because you have a situation on the european continent that. While it's definitely not the same, it's certainly analogous. And that's why you can draw some of those parallels.
0: Yeah, I actually like that you kind of took it there because I have a different answer to the question I asked you as to like why I think it justified its existence. But I think it's really interesting that like, look, just by the nature of when it's released, I think it's like very valuable. And, I, and, I, and so I appreciate that point. Uh, Adam, uh, did, did did you enjoy this movie?
2: Oh, yeah, I, I thought it was great.
0: As much yeah. as you can enjoy something that gruesome. I, I mean, I think, did you appreciate it might even be better? Because I mean, I don't know how much you know how fun it is to necessarily like in a vacuum watch this stuff but like it sounds like you think it was very well done though
2: oh yeah yeah absolutely uh definitely i'd put it probably if not in my my five favorite movies of this year then then very near uh yeah actually no no actually i think i would put it in my top i think i had it i was thinking about this the other day and i think i put it at three um I i thought it was excellent
0: Gotcha. Well, in, in, in what ways do you think in, in what in what ways did it most impress you as far as whether it be the filmmaking or the storytelling or whatnot? What, what really kind of like grabbed you by the lapels?
2: I mean, I thought, you know, the storytelling was really good. I mean, it's based off an all time great novel, so hard to not be very good. But I thought that was great. Um, I thought there's a lot of visual scenes that I thought were excellent. And then I just think um, as, you know, a bit of a World War One buff, I think it really captured just the absolute insanity, charnel house that, that was World War One. I. I read accounts of World War One or listen to podcasts about it, and I think, how in the world did anyone survive this? Like I don't I don't know how anyone got anyone got out of it alive. It's well, just I'm, it's, I'm... it's insane. Um so I did I think it did a really good job of of capturing that. And what well, is it? I was saying capturing how hellish it was to be a soldier in World War One.
0: Well, I'm glad. I'm glad I asked you that follow up question and got you there because that's kind of where I wanted to go with it. And that, like, you know, I, I was asking for this question about why it justified its own existence, and and it's hard not to think a little bit about 1917 when you're watching this movie, just because, like, you know, visually, like, they both kind of recreated what it might have looked like. They're okay, but they're both shot. They're shot extremely differently. Is one thing I'd say, and in large part because uh, 1917 is, which you know, it won Roger Deakins and Oscar, but it's like a, it's a, I mean, it's kind of a gimmick movie in that it's made to look like one shot. And that's that that's a really cool way to watch a movie, I would say, and it's very, very unique the way they did that in a war movie. But I think one thing about 1917 doing that is that it kind of like made it feel like more of like a clear mission than it actually was when you're like, you know, clearly just like from this guy's perspective the whole time, just watching him basically all throughout the George McKay character there and you're and and he, i mean even if it's like not everything goes according to plan to him it feels like you can really follow what he's doing and where he's going relatively clearly because it's done as a, a whole movie's done to look like a one and i that's and as you said adam world war one was kind of chaos and one thing I, I i kind of couldn't help but think about and i don't know if either of you have watched this i know fred's gone back and revisited a decent amount of david simon stuff i don't know if you ever either of you've ever watched generation kill i think i watched that for the first time early in the pandemic it's the it's the miniseries David Simon did for HBO about like the early days of the uh, invasion of Iraq. And just like, I think it was an adaptation from like a a Rolling Stone writer's uh, article where he embedded with one of the the first battalions like actually going to Iraq and just how like they had no idea what they were doing. And I remember watching that miniseries and like being like, and me, just again, not being someone that like, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily quite the history buff that you guys are probably, and I, I can't necessarily, like, necessarily explain a lot of the politics or the, the military strategy going on at that time. And I was talking to our friend Elijah about it, and I was like, yeah, I'm liking Generation Kill, but I can't really follow what they're supposed to be doing. And he's like, dude, that's the point. Like, we didn't know what we, what the hell we were doing when we were over there. It was really disorganized. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. And Now I can like watch, watch, watch this miniseries and not feel as bad that I'm not following every little plot detail. And I'm watching this movie, and it's like. The fact that like the way it throws you into the battle scenes compared to 1917, like it just feels like total chaos like Adam said I don't know how anyone can survive and I think because you're not really in I think uh, th- th- I read one review from Vince Mancini at Uproxx where he said you know and I think it kind of like explained my feelings well though it, it was maybe a little more negative towards 1917 than I was thinking but it said if 1917 was built around a technical gimmick in war horse around a conceptual one war is being seen by a horse all quiet on the western fronts chief conceit is the magnificent cinematography the effect is to leave you thinking more about its content than its construction it's like that's what I was thinking or it's like yeah this thing was shot so well and just like making the whole thing feel like just a total clusterfuck and i think that's kind of what the war was because there was like the, the reasons behind it and the reasons for staying in it and the aims once people were on the battlefield were just like so dumb and dense and really hard to parse and understand it's like i think the movie just conveyed all of that extremely well it through kind of following a character, but just following a character in a different way from 1917. I'm wondering, Fred, when you watched it, did you, whether it be, and did, did you come away with any like real takeaways or thoughts as to like how it was shot and how that kind of informed what it wanted to say about the war?
1: It was a very nice reminder of what it is that I find so fascinating about World War I. Because World War II, obviously, there's a lot of scholarship around um, that war as well. But that can ultimately be distilled down to good versus evil. I really think it's that simple. You have people who are doing horrible stuff uh, on one side and people who are trying to prevent them from taking over a whole bunch of countries on the other side. Obviously, it's more complex than that, but I really do think the essence of that is basically that. Uh, World War I, on the other hand, a whole bunch of countries just kind of stumbled into it. And people who ended up on the front a lot of times didn't fully understand why they were even there in the first place. And that would have been especially true of uh, teenagers, young boys who are like 10, 12 years younger than we are at this point, just being shipped to the front with very little training. Uh, They have absolutely no idea what it really is they're doing. So in the original, they actually do receive a little bit of training before they get shipped to the front lines because it's 1914 and they still have time to actually do that kind of stuff because the war was just at its very beginning. Mm -hmm. This movie, on the other hand, uh, those kids sign up in 1917 so it's already three years into the war uh they don't really have that much time to train them anymore if at all because they desperately need them on the front line because so many of them have just been killed already and i think that is a really compelling choice for them to make because it just throws us right into the battles as well Mm -hmm. and we're kind of caught off guard just like these kids are because all of a sudden, they're being shot at. There are all of these noises around them. And World War I especially, and trench warfare specifically, is this really strong assault on all the senses. Um, you hear grenades going off right next to you. There is machine gun fire. You have the smell of people getting incinerated, of burned flesh. So there's just all of this stuff happening around them, and they're having a really hard time processing all of it. And I think the movie did an excellent job from the very beginning, of conveying that in a way that just wasn't possible in 1930 because sound had only just been invented. And while I would say that that version also did a really good job with the means that were available to them at the time, obviously, when you have 2022 technology to work with, you can make that sound a lot more impressive. And that's, I think, one of the other aspects, as you asked me earlier, why a movie like that uh, is definitely justifiable in 2022
0: right you know like there are plenty of big budget movies out there that like you know totally flop but if you like uh, but like big budget remakes at that but like you know if you could if you if you could do it right i think one way to like actually you know improve on it is like you know use the technology available to you to like actually like you know just make something better it's funny you mentioned some of that stuff because i and i was going to bring it up later but i may as well now like i i feel like one thing i don't and i'm sure there is some of it in 1917 and maybe a couple of these others but i don't actually remember seeing flamethrowers or tanks in some of those other movies and if i and, and if i did i just think this movie like introduced things like that in a very very like effective way where it's like yeah like something like that like we know what flamethrowers and tanks are i was surprised to see it here cuz i i didn't remember it being in other world war 1 movies i didn't remember that being technology they necessarily had at that point but the fact is i'm not i, I for one i'm not going to be like shocked by a tank in and of itself cuz i know what a tank is I think here the movie was like pretty impressive in how it just like made that like a pretty like uh, terrifying sight. Even if it's something that like us as uh, as a 2022 audience might actually just be like numb to seeing in a movie, they it was pretty effective in showing just how terrifying it might actually be to like those people. I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on like how those kind of weapons were incorporated, but I thought like that was pretty effective and felt like something a little different from what I'd seen in other uh, other war movies from that time or set in that time.
2: Well, I'll say the, the thing that really impressed me the way they portrayed it was um, like the defining image, I think, of probably World War One is, you know, soldiers climbing out of the trenches and running through machine gun fire, people dropping like flies. And they do portray that a few times. But one of the actual things that was probably even a bigger killer than like those offensives was just uh, the daily toll from artillery. Um, artillery was a major, major part of World War One, and it just took. People's law. Even on days where there wasn't offensives, people were just basically hanging out in their trenches all day. You know, they'd still be dropping ton, tons of artillery shells on each side, and it would it would kill people. Um, and that's what it drove some soldiers to just actual madness. And I think they portrayed that well, uh, well early in the movie. Or, the, early yeah. in the movie,
0: one of Paul's friends kind of like dies by what almost seems like an accidental bullet. Correct.
2: Yeah, he just like just hits by an artillery shell, and then like the bunker they're in collapses. Um, what in that scene actually, and it was only for a split second, you see his friend, he starts banging, he can't take it, he starts banging his head on the wall of the bunker. And I was like, wow, I've never seen that in a movie before. But like that was what happened. It would literally dr- it would drive people mad. Um, and it, it's hard to portray in a film, uh, just because of how crazy it was. Like, there's I think some audio recordings of the the drum fire, they called it. It was like they called it drum fire because it was as fast as, like, hitting a drum. Just, like, multiple shells going off every second. It's just, it's, like, it's really inconceivable, which is another reason why I say, like, it's hard to believe anyone actually survived this war. Because it would just happen all the time, constantly. Just shells would fall constantly.
0: Fred, if you didn't have anything to add to that, the next thing, question I wanted to ask you guys was about, like, and it goes to the horrors of the war, too. And one thing I know, no, another thing I thought the movie did a little differently from, or... Thought that another place the movie thought to go that I hadn't seen in a ton of other war movies, also was uh, just the, the, uh, the provisions and having to even get food in the first place. I mean, it's something that's maybe taken for granted sometimes in war movies. You don't really think about like how logistically difficult that might be. But a big part of this movie is guys trying to scavenge for food. And there's even like the the unique part of the, the, and there's even a unique there's even a moment where they just end up where they do infiltrate the um, the French trench. I uh, didn't actually mean to rhyme there. And they and they all of a sudden just come across the table of food in the middle of everything. They're like, oh, let's just eat. And it's like I, I I I thought that I thought that was like really interesting. Like Fred, what did you think overall, whether it be the food or just like the disease or everything else like that? Like you talked about like how there's like obviously like probably like dealing with like the stench of like maybe like you know burnt bodies but like just like as far as like the daily grind with how miserable it was what kind of like really like uh what what really worked in the movie for you in that regard and just conveying that like man aside from just the death this is just not a fun place to be
1: yeah, that was the really interesting aspect when the book was first published because Remarque yeah. was actually a soldier in world war one mm. like he had experienced trench wow. warfare firsthand and a lot of those stories hadn't really made the, made the rounds yet over the past 10 years i mean you had people who returned from the war but a lot of them simply refused to talk about their experiences uh, it was still se- it was still seen as unpatriotic in germany to talk negatively about what warfare does to a person because obviously the whole mantra they had been preaching up until that point was that it's glorious to die for your fatherland. i mean that famous poem that wilfred owen wrote in the trenches and I think what the movie does a really good job depicting is that there is absolutely no glory in any of it. I mean, obviously, when you're getting gunned down or you're dying of disease in the trenches because the sanitary conditions were just awful, I mean, that kind of speaks for itself. But even during the other times, you're just kind of sitting around um, smoking cigarettes if you're lucky um and like you said already you're desperately trying to find any kind of food you end up risking your life to break into farm buildings and try to steal chickens uh, on the case of the original it was actually a pig uh, that he tried to steal mm-hmm. and i just think it's a really interesting element of the movie that it, it just paints such a vivid and detailed picture of all of those aspects because what you have to remember is when the book was published and the first movie came out. Uh, World War One wasn't World War One yet, it was just the Great War. Uh, World War Two hadn't happened yet. And that was the context the book was published in the first movie came out. And the whole point of why Remarque wrote the book in the first place was to show people how shitty it is to send a whole generation of young men into war, and millions of them never coming home. It might be a good idea to prevent this in the future. Mm -hmm. So he really just left nothing out and really just dove deep into just the daily grind and all of the awful aspects of being a soldier in the trenches and the movie here did a really good job of capturing that as well.
0: I also think it did a really good job in some ways of like kind of just showing, but not telling how horrified the, the, the guys themselves were with the war at a certain point. And I, by that, I'm thinking mainly well, one of the primary things my, my mind went to it that I actually, I only really took like six bullet points down when I was watching the movie, which I think, you know, speaks to like how the movie, like, you know, kind of kept me that engaged that I wasn't even thinking to go back and write the notes that much. But like I, the the, the moment when Paul kind of gets trapped in a crater with another French shoulder and like and instinctively like goes to defend himself and stabs the guy. But then like, you know, also then tries to save his life. It's like, I'd never quite seen anything like that in like a war movie before where someone's like, you know, in a certain point, just like has to watch him. Like is like kind of resigned to like having to watch this guy, you know, fight a slow death. And then like actually tries to like kind of go back on that and save him. And then just kind of like has to like give in. And that, that was like, it it was kind of wild to me. It's like, all right, this guy's just kind of like uh, become become like, so kind of disgusted with what's going on. He's like trying to comfort the enemy. And I, I, I just I, – I kind of find that fascinating and just felt – it felt like a a different way of just kind of showing, like, how, how like, disenchanted these guys become with the war because we've all seen plenty of movies about people that are – don't like war, or anti-war, become disenchanted with, them, with, with their status within military rank, at least – I mean, more so – and, like, I'm thinking more of, I guess, any movie about, like, American troops, but, like, I'm sure – plenty of German troops were feeling the same way. And it's just not something I really ever really, uh, it's not something I ever really paid a lot of mind to in these movies. Cause a lot of times it's guys talking about how they've been wronged by their government or how they sent them to fight a war. They didn't really actually know what they were getting into. And it's fine. Like, you know, there's plenty of good movies where guys talk about it like that, but it was like, man, you really kind of felt it with these guys actions. Just like uh, just how futile they kind of felt like this whole endeavor was becoming. And I, th- I just thought the movie was pretty effective in showing that.
2: Um, yeah, that that scene. I mean, I was I legitimately like was tearing up. Like, it was such a good scene. Uh, it was just done so well, acted so well. Like it, that that's the scene that made the movie for me. It just it was incredible.
0: And I think to even get you to that point emotionally, like it's got to make you feel something for these characters. And I think it's interesting. Like, you know, they, they and, and I really didn't even ask you yet, Fred or, or Adam. And I think it, it's it's a question worth asking to both of you as Fred is like someone that's from Germany and actually speaks German. Like what, what I, but like what it's like to actually like get this movie, not just from like being made by German people, but in German. But like, if also it's, it's, I'm curious to see, like, I mean, it's number seven on Netflix right now. So it must be still connecting with audiences anyway, but I'm guessing that, that part of that probably goes to like how you can connect with the characters though. If there's if there's any, maybe any one critique I have, it might be aside from Paul, I'm not really sure I connected with a lot of the characters to the extent they wanted the movie. It seemed like the movie wanted me to. It was just kind of hard to maybe kind of keep him straight at a certain point at a couple moments. Like, you know, I, I I'd say maybe the, for the most part, it's, I, I mean, maybe like a little bit more at the end, like when, it, um, when, it, when, when they steal from the farm again, his friend at that point, like you've, you've been with him through enough of the movie, I can't necessarily say I connected with a ton of other people besides him, even if there are a couple of deaths where it really wanted me in there. I'm, I'm wondering, Fred, like, did, did the movie like get you invested on in enough of these characters Because like I I, even in my answer to this question is no, I still think I was like actually like really into the movie. But like I think some people can even probably like probably appreciate even more if they were like actually can I kind of connecting with these characters, which always isn't always necessarily the goal or should or necessarily should be the goal of a war movie. But I'm wondering like did they do a good enough job with their storytelling and with their character development for your purposes?
1: I've got a couple of points uh, about things that you guys uh, had discussed over the last few minutes. But the first thing I would say about what you just uh, mentioned is. I think to an extent that is intentional, mm-hmm. uh, that the characters might not be as distinctive as you might have liked, because after all, when it comes down to it, they're just another name tag on the uniform that can get cut off and then passed down to the next soldier. That, oh, needs that, that, that scene, just, just, that, just, just, that's what the movie had man. It, that, that Yeah, it, the it, they're, yeah. All, they're all just a whole bunch of young guys with a lot of similarities. Uh, they might have had a promising future, they were in school, and they left it all behind to fight for their country, and then got killed. And a lot of them probably very similar ways uh, to the ones we saw depicted in this movie. Uh, That scene in The Crater with the French soldier is interestingly enough, and I hadn't really mentioned this yet, the original from 1930 is very different in a lot of ways than the 2022 one, to the point where you can only barely even tell that they're based on the same book. Hmm. Uh, But that scene is really the only one that is almost a one-for-one parallel. Interesting. uh, In both. Uh, So that scene is in the 1930 original as well, it's obviously not quite as graphic, and Paul's demeanor is a little bit more Hollywoodized, if that makes sense, where it just doesn't feel quite as gritty and as hurt and pained as he is in this one. I mean, he gives a lot of monologues about how awful war is and how terrible. So the 1930s version doesn't depict that scene quite as authentically as this one does, but it is essentially the same thing that happens. The guy is choking on his own blood and on mud. Uh, and Paul feels incredibly guilty about what he has done. Uh, and the last thing I want to bring up, because you asked me that question originally about watching a movie in German about German soldiers in World War I. Hollywood has trained its viewers over the decades to associate German being spoken with the villains. Mm. that's always the case in war movies when you hear things like schießen or schnell (laughs) it's always the villains approaching and shit is about to get really bad but in this particular case i actually had to sort of retrain my brain a little bit because every time you heard german being spoken around paul it wasn't in fact the bad guys coming to kill him It was his own people around him giving him orders or dying and screaming something and i think that really just hits on the point that ultimately these are all just young guys getting killed for a cause that they don't fully understand and that's really the tragedy of world war one most of the decisions were made really high up by people who were in power because they were part of a bloodline that had existed for centuries kings emperors czars and they had no problem sending millions of people into the trenches to get killed, regardless of what language they spoke. They all ended up dying anyway. And the movie does a really good job of hitting home that point because of that.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. I hadn't even necessarily thought about that. And it it, it might just go different, it might just and I, I get what you're saying about how they've kind of trained American audiences to think that, but it also probably just like registers with your ear a little differently. And so because it's like they've also trained people or trained certain moviegoers to just like read the subtitles pretty mechanically. And I'd say that's often how I'm like kind of consuming it though. At the same time, I just, I do think it's interesting how it's like, uh, you know, I, I, while I did just criticize them for maybe not being that invested in the characters, uh, as I wanted to be. And I, and I totally get your point about why that might be the case They're interchangeable. And yes, Adam, that opening sequence is like another thing that just felt like very, very unique and really a great storytelling sequence that was very economical and didn't take that long with respect to like the, the uniform thing. And, uh, but at the same time, like, I'm like, you know, I, I, I might not be trained to think much about myself my in within my, between my ears, I might not be trained to just like think something when I hear German, but like when I, when I think the German language, but when I just think German and war movie, I do think villain. And I think it just, and again, this, this isn't maybe something that's just unique to this movie again, because again, it's based on the earlier version and the larger story. So a couple of the larger story beats might be the same. And so much as like, you are spending enough time with these people that like, you're not really seeing them as villains necessarily, anyway. You might be. Like, if anyone's villains, it's, the, it's 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 a particular group within the German army that, like, you know, the the, the that the, the probably the people that like Hitler wouldn't have considered traitors. And it was just interesting to be like, okay, like, yeah, we've been trained all along just think, you know, Allies are the good guys, and you know, here are the the Germans and anyone else fighting with them, they're not they're not so good. It's like, and I guess just. Overall, I just thought it was kind of impressive how it kind of like it, it kind of exp- the, the movie kind of explained how like, look, just because someone is fighting for the German army uh, doesn't necessarily mean that they they're, they're, they have a whole lot of just necessarily moral failings. But like they're kind of the victims of a, of a larger system of some people that are going to send them into war for their own political for their own political uh, motives. And I get I, I and I and I which I appreciate. And we didn't really necessarily even talk that much about the uh, the conference room part of this movie. But I from what I understand, Fred, that's also something that's a little more. Prominently featured in this movie, you know, if, and it might not even be that they might not be anything like that, even in the original. I'm wondering what did you think about There's the whole? Dan- yeah, what do you, what did what did you think about the whole Daniel brule section of this movie? Did it, did it do a good job of getting it? Just like you know how kind of like the dissonance or I don't even know what the right term is, but like how these guys can just like decide the decide the fate, like just, just sitting at a table like that. I I, I feel like the movie's trying to say something about just like, you know, just like how just how just crazy the war is and how it can just those guys can just at the flick of a wrist just like put a put a stop to everything. It it just feels very odd.
1: Yeah. It was kind of interesting that This movie actually uh, depicted that because, again, it wasn't part of the original and it wasn't part of the book either. And I think that's in part because Remark just didn't really want to focus on it because he had firsthand experience as a soldier in the trenches. uh, And that was the emphasis of his book, not really about the political machinations that happened in the background to start and then end the war. Mm -hmm. Uh, In part because, again, as I mentioned earlier, the book and the original aren't actually set at the end of the war. Uh, that is actually a very distinct element here where you're kind of seeing the action of the last few days of the war while they're negotiating the armistice. So there wasn't really room for that in any of the previous versions. Right. Uh, and I think a lot of the depiction of that comes with just a century worth of accumulated knowledge. Now we kind of understand what led to some of the decisions uh, in World, World War One. that it was mainly just hubris by the leadership and just the refusal to accept that they had lost and that they would have to see power, which in a lot of cases ended even worse because um, several monarchies were abolished, even some during the war, some after the war. And what I also found fascinating about those scenes, aside from the fact that they depicted the just grotesque uh, differences between the horrible life in the trenches and uh, those guys getting to eat super delicious food and complaining if the bread Mm -hmm. was a day old. Uh, That was a particularly uh, striking scene for me. I think what's also particularly important about Daniel Brühl's character, Matthias Erzberger, is that he is actually a real historical figure who got assassinated a few years after the war because people were extremely unhappy with his rhetoric about the choices he made, uh, the fact that he decided to prioritize German lives over the glory of the fatherland, so to speak. Um, And I think it's valuable for those scenes to be in the movie. Because you really need to understand that disconnect between the leadership and the soldiers fighting to get a full picture of what World War One was all about. And all quite on the Western Front being one of the absolute staples of World War One literature. Uh, and one of the early classics of Hollywood in the war genre. I think that is a critical aspect for this remake to add to it and to sort of plant its own flag in this particular uh, story that's been told a few times over the past 100 years.
0: Yeah, Adam, did anything jump out to you about that about that segment of the movie?
2: Um, yeah, I, I mean, I thought it was really well done. Um, I wouldn't say really much... Aside from what Fred already, you know, could more eloquently put it than me, uh, described, like I, I thought it was really solid. I was also really taken by the portrayal of um I don't know if he's ever named the movie, the general, the German general. I don't know if you ever get a name for him, but he's he's I look he's not a real person. Uh, I think mean, mm-hmm. he's a composite character. He seemed like he might be based off of Eric Ludendorff. I could be wrong. Um, that seems like the vibe I kind of got. But um that was probably, that was more striking to me. Uh, at the very end, and I think the the like armistice uh, negotiations and stuff was like uh, the general ordering, you know, the, the German soldiers. They think the war's over. They know, you know, the the ceasefire is going to start in six hours or whatever, and he orders them to fight again uh, for no reason, but to maybe get slightly more land for Germany at that, you know, when they go to negotiate the treaty, or for a little bit of more glory for him uh, at the end of the war. That was something that was really striking to me because just the insanity of it, you know, like like Fred said, the hubris of it and the pride just trying to get that last little bite of the apple and sacrificing lives for no reason because the war's over. Everyone knows the war's over. That really stood out to me as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was just – I just – gosh, I – I mean I I can't I, I mean after after a lot of what our country's been through the last few years I can't be surprised about leaders just doing something to put you know their their constituents or their citizens at risk but it was just it was just very striking to be like see someone do something that wreck and again I, I actually don't know like i mean and you maybe you guys no matter than me if there there was any kind of like last surge like that actually made but like the fact that like it's even conceivable that like because they obviously like stuck in the war probably longer than they should have it's totally believable that something like that could have happened and it's just like it's just very very crazy to like see the cost of war and it's just that like they can be that reckless with lives it's like man that's it just kind of—it's it, just another example, even beyond like what we already discussed or what you know about the start of this war, or the 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 reasons for starting it in the first place. It's like people didn't really get people really really didn't get that much smarter by the end of it. And it's, yeah, I, I, did, and I did I did it's, look it's it. really sad.
2: I did look it up, and I think there were like eleven thousand casualties or fatalities on the last day of the war.
0: Jesus uh, Christ!
2: Yeah, there were still people dying up until the moment the armistice went into effect, uh, even a little bit after. Uh, I think one of the last casualties. Her last fatalities was um after the actual ceasefire or actual like the armistice went into effect. Um it just it was I mean, a charnel house and it, it didn't stop. But yeah
0: the, the, the last like ten minutes of this movie just like really got to me probably almost more so than any that that whole sequence there with like just this last day fighting when they already knew of the armistice being in effect. Combined with like those final title cards, which I mean, and where I mean, again, I know Adam, you might have some clarification that we were talking about before, and to provide to this, but for large swaths of the war, if nothing else, like the front barely moved, and they, they, oftentimes, long parts of this war were like fought over like a couple hundred yards, and you could kind of get gather that if you're just like watching how these scenes were shot. But even as you're doing that, it's like you're you're naturally thinking in your head like no one's going to all this trouble unless they're gaining something out of it. That's really tangible. And that just wasn't the case. And that was just like, man, I already knew about a lot of the pointlessness of this. I I've known how rough it looked. And I just thought like, look, I mean, I'm talking, I'm giving a lot of credit for showing, not telling, but like you're going to tell, I think they did a pretty effective job of like dropping the hammer there. And like all that like miserable shit you just watched for like the last two hours and 15 minutes. Here's what, here's what it was uh, in service of, or what, 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 what it accomplished. And it was like, God, that just like it, just like it, just kind of like almost made my jaw drop at a point where I was just like almost ready to like be emotionally like over the whole thing because it had been a long movie. I was like, oh my god, like it somehow this like made me kind of even more just dis- angry and despondent. You know, a hundred years after the fact.
2: Yeah, it, it really is wild. Like basically, I mean, from a thirty thousand foot view, like the history of World War One on the Western Front, the Germans made a massive advance to start the war through Luxembourg, uh, Belgium, and into France. They got pretty close to Paris. Um, the French and British fought them off at the Battle of the Marne um, and then pushed them back a bit. And from that point on, from like late 1914 until 1918, things didn't really change a whole lot. There were There were major offensives. The British launched uh, the, at the Somme, uh, and the Germans, I think, launched an assault at Verdun. So there were these major battles where they're trying to break through, and they gained some ground for a little bit, but they are basically they didn't gain much ground at all for basically three and a half years. And then in 1918, the Germans launched an offensive, um, the Kaiserschlacht, and the uh, Allies fought that back. They advanced for the 100, last 100 days offensive, which basically broke through the German lines a bit, not all the way to Germany. The war was not fought in Germany on the Western Front at all, um, but they broke through. Some of their lines and basically broke the back of the, the German army for the most part, and that's where the armistice was signed. Basically, it was after this hundred or during this hundred days offensive uh, by the Allies. Like, but they never like advanced into Germany. Like most of the war was fought largely in in the same place.
1: Yeah the pro- yeah. the problem that the Germans had was they had this plan to invade all of the countries to the west, historically known as the Schlieffen Plan, and It didn't work out. Um, As Adam already described, they got fought back pretty early on, and the Germans had no contingencies in place. They thought they were just going to win the war in a few weeks or months. They'd all be home by Christmas. That was kind of the common thing everybody was saying when the war first started. And clearly, that wasn't the case, because they had no way to follow up on what they had initially come up with. So yeah, for four years, they were digging trenches, didn't really move all that much for the most part. And the fascinating thing about the title, All Quiet on the Western Front, it's a bit of an ironic name, right, because it's never quiet on the Western Front. There are always bombs dropping. There is always some kind of noise. Uh, But the literal translation uh, of the German title, Invest Nichts Neues, really means nothing new to report from the West. And there wasn't. Of course not. The lines hadn't really moved. Trenches were still where they were before. If some of the German soldiers took French trenches, they were usually pushed back within a day or two. So for four years, with minor exceptions, yeah, there really wasn't a whole lot uh, of new things to say, except for millions of soldiers dying.
2: Yeah, there's an amazing, yeah. There's a great podcast uh, by Dan Carlin, his uh, Hardcore History series, where he did a series over the course of like two years uh, called Blueprint for Armageddon, which is a series, it's almost 24 hours long in total. Uh, all about World War 1 it it's fascinating it's where a lot of my World War 1 knowledge comes from i've i it's what sparked my interest in World War 1 uh like 6 7 years ago i've since read a few books about it i got a few more i got to read too but um it really is it's like i always like Fred was kind of saying this earlier i it's like easy to think of like World War 1 as like this oscar winning drama and then World War 2 is kind of like the the michael bay sequel where it's just like everyone's comically evil or, you know, does horrible things and the, you know, the budget's much higher, there's bigger explosions <laughs> and it's crazier it kind of is, but like, yeah, it's just, it's world war one is just, it's so tragic because um, they're really like the generals kept trying to do the same things over and over again. Surely if we send, you know, a hundred thousand men into machine gun fire, they'll get through. Oh, that didn't work. Well, let's try 200,000 men. Well, that didn't work. Let's try 400,000. And it just, they did that for years. Um, and it just never, obviously it never worked. They never broke through. Um, it's, it's really, and like, I think this movie did a good job of showing that, like just that these, these battlefields became just absolute like moonscapes. Like there's no trees anymore, just all mud and dirt and craters and puddles. Um, there are accounts of, of men, of soldiers, uh, less so in France. I think the bigger time that happened was in, in Belgium at the battle of Passchendaele, where men would fall into these puddles and these craters full of water and chemicals. And they would, they literally would drown in these, they were weighed down by their gear and they would drown and there's nothing anyone could do for them. It's really like, it's really hell on earth. Uh, it's it's astounding. Um, and they, I think they did a good job of portraying that.
0: One of the other, the only other note I actually had that I didn't get to was that like, and it, it just kind of goes to the frustration and just how futile and much I felt, but like, it, it, because these conditions are so muddy and wet, no matter whose side anyone was on, all the uniforms looked the same to me throughout most of the movie because it just all got so dirty. And I'm like, man, like, and and like again, like, we're, this is a movie, but at the same time, like, that seems totally reasonably realistic for what something might have happened. It's just, it goes to the chaos of those, it goes to the chaos of those battles again. But it's like, man, I don't even know how I would know who to stab at a certain point. Uh, with well, like well, so fun, fun, uh,
2: not even not fun, interesting, un- World War One uniform <laughs> trivia. Uh, at the beginning of the war, the French wore still basically the traditional, like French military uniforms that like dated back to like the Napoleonic age. Uh, bright blue shirts and bright red pants. Until they realized, hey, that makes for a really, really easy target. We should probably stop wearing this.
0: Did not know that that's fun. That's that's fun fact. Yeah, um, you know. Yeah. So it's like I don't know. I just it, it, that was just like one more thing on top of like not that like i would ever want to be at war in the first place but i'm like man if I, if I if i were over there i'd like to like at least not like have all my friends look like my enemies to me basically and it was just like jesus christ this is just like an impossible situation i don't know how i don't know how people manage to like fight in this and even know how to even go about it and i no, the thought i had was that like i i appreciated the fred point fred made about the training earlier but like at the same time because it kind of jumps they kind of jump through time a little bit. Like they go from like the, you know, showing where the, uh, the first time we follow those characters, once they get to the war, that's in 1917. The next time we kind of pick back up with them is like later. We're led to believe that like Paul's figured out kind of how to fight at some point too. So he's kind of like learned, but like at the same time, like, so it's, it's like incredibly impressive when he's able to like navigate those battlefield sequences. Cause it's just like, I, damn, I don't know how I do this. Everyone looks the goddamn same.
2: Um, uh, there was, there was one other thing I wanted to mention another historical yeah. thing that, that rem- the beginning of the movie reminded me of, mm-hmm. um, it was common early in the war where like with the, when the fervor was high, because by 1917, there were like, that's kind of an anachronism in the movie because by 1917, people, people knew it was really bad. Uh, There wasn't that kind of joy to sign up and serve so much. Mm -hmm. That was more of an early in the war kind of thing. Um, But the things like in the movie where whole fraternities would sign up together and serve in the same, uh, the same battalion or same regiment, they'd all sign up together and they'd form a military unit together uh, and especially early in the war, I think there's a battle in Belgium that got called the Slaughter of the Innocents or something along those lines, where all these German fraternity fraternity kids they were marching into battle and the British just gunned them down. Um, They're marching in neat formation, and the British had ver- the British troops who were in Belgium at that time were basically the best of the best British troops, and they just like I think the account like the accounts of that it's like. They made rifle fire, like single shot rifle fire, sound like machine gun fire because they were firing so quickly and they were trained so well. And they just slaughtered all these college kids basically, um, which the beginning made me think of like the beginning of the movie made me think of that because, like, yeah, they're all excited they're going to go sign up and fight the war and have this grand old time. And most of the like, whole fraternities got wiped out. It, it's absolutely insane. Whole yeah, that
1: made an whole point. Yeah. Adam made an interesting point just now that actually reminded me of something from the original uh, from 1930, because there is actually a scene in there where Paul uh, is injured and then goes home for a while to his family. Hmm. And this is a few years into the war and they don't depict that in this movie, but it was really fascinating in uh, the original version because he goes back to a school and to his old classroom where the same teacher who gave that impassioned speech when they first signed up about fighting for your fatherland and, wouldn't it be glorious to return as heroes. He's still there, years later, giving that exact same spiel to his students, still telling them to sign up to fight for their country, because the way it's depicted is that a lot of people at home didn't really know what was going on on the front. I mean, they could tell that obviously a lot of them had died and that the war had been going on for way longer than was initially promised and advertised, sure, but... The teacher desperately asks paul here you have all of these young men there just like you were three years ago tell them how awesome it is to fight on the front and how proud you are of what you've been doing and of course paul doesn't do that uh paul tells them no it's awful it's terrible you don't really feel alive or dead anymore at that point because you can't allow yourself to think in those terms and the kids in the room just call him a coward and you're just afraid to go back to the front and the teacher is kind of shell shocked to hear about this uh, coming from Paul, a kid who enthusiastically signed up a few years earlier. And I do think that there was some very clever propaganda in most countries, but in Germany especially, they're always good at propaganda to just kind of keep up this illusion for a long time that young men were still needed. Maybe, maybe you'll be the one to finally march into Paris because we're this close. They didn't really know at the time where the, the front line was. Uh, mm-hmm. The news were always behind. They didn't really have um, updated, detailed uh, reports uh, for civilians like we do nowadays. Now we have a pretty good idea of what's going on in wars uh, if we ever engaged in one. But back then, there was still a whole lot, lot of ignorance. So it's kind of fascinating to see that even three years later, even if it was anachronistic, no doubt about that. Uh, you can still kind of see, especially some of the smaller villages who might not have been as connected to the rest of the world, being under this impression that, hey, maybe if we send our kids to France, they'll be the ones returning as the conquering heroes because they're this close to finally taking Paris.
0: Interesting. Uh, Adam, any other thoughts about All Quiet on the Western Front or any, any other parts about the movie you wanted to highlight before we wrapped up?
2: Uh, there, I will say there was, there was one shot that really stood out to me. I'm not normally a big cinematography guy. Uh, it's just not like something I noticed unless it really stands out. There's a shot. I think it was after the artillery barrage at the beginning of the movie where Paul wakes up and it's dark. It's pitch black. His face is covered in dirt and he opens his eyes and they're brilliantly white. And I was like, you got me. That was good. <laughs> like that was a good shot. Um, but yeah, no, I think I, I think, I you know, mentioned most of the things that, you know, um, I thought about it. And like I said, I think it's a great movie. Uh, I think it, you know, it definitely gets his message across. Yeah, just it was an excellent movie. And like I said, I'm a World War One buff. So I'm super excited when I saw that they were da- uh, releasing a movie. I've never seen the 1930 movie. I haven't read the book, um, but I'm going to. Literally immediately after I finished the movie, I ordered the book. Um, hmm. So it's, it's on my list. And I also, I also ordered another World War One book that I haven't read before, but I've heard cited a million times. Um, it's a very famous book It's uh, called Storm of Steel by Ernst Junger. Basically, it's a diary from the front for the entirety of the four years, uh, and I've heard it cited. I've, heard, I've seen excerpts from it, but I haven't actually read it, so I've ordered both of those, and now they're both on my list of books to read.
0: It, the point you made about the cinematography, I just want to highlight that again And so much as I talked about 1917 earlier, and I mean, it's just cool that like another World War One movie that came out so soon after that one that won an Academy Award for cinematography – cinematography kind of found a way to stand on its own with respect to its visuals. And I really appreciated it it for that. Fred, any other final thoughts on all quiet on the Western front?
1: A small handful. So the first thing I want to add to the cinematography is the director of this movie is a guy named Edward Berger, who Mm -hmm. is known stateside for directing a few episodes of the first uh, season of the terror a few years ago, which was a really good show set in the Arctic circle uh, where a ship kind of gets stuck for the winter and then the people are picked off one by one by monsters and just the horrible conditions. Uh, This guy is really good at evoking dread of people walking into their doom. And Mm -hmm. All Quiet on the Western Front was essentially the perfect project for him because he had already demonstrated quite well that he can do wondrous things uh, when given the right resources. Uh, Second thing, I want to give a shout out to Felix Kammerer. Uh, He is the guy who plays Paul, newcomer from Austria. Very intriguing what he does next. He has this really fascinating thing that uh, I like to call dead eye syndrome, where you really just see the trauma and the horrors reflected in his face all the time. And I think that is something that's difficult to act, especially because he doesn't really need a lot of words to convey it. And I think that's very impressive. And the third thing is, I mentioned this earlier, this is in fact the German submission for the International Feature Oscar. I'm very intrigued if it actually uh, ends up... uh, getting one of the five slots for the nominees. I think it's strategically smart to nominate this one uh, because Hollywood always enjoys these kinds of anti-war movies. Um, you might remember that they thought about inviting Zelensky for a telecast last year, an idea That's that huge. was thankfully shut down because can you imagine? Guy <laughs> makes a plea for uh, non-aggression and then you have Will Smith socking someone in the face during that very same ceremony. Would not have gone Oscar- over well.
0: I looked up one set of Oscar predictions uh, a few minutes ago as Adam was talking, sorry, Adam. And they, uh, and it showed, it showed that, uh, they, they, it showed it had it projected as like the second most like the second most likely, or like ranked number two in the projections of international features. So I think it's, I think it's definitely in the mix. So I, I just wanted to, to, to know that. And, and it's also just interesting that like, when you think about what is normally there in international feature, I think Parasite was more the exception in the rule. And even I'm just guessing Parasite probably had a lower budget than this, but normally like the international feature movies, they just aren't, on this level of production with this kind of budget. So I think it's going to like, that's just going to stand out to the voters as far as like when they're watching what's normally nominated in this category, they're normally watching like, um, you know, more serious, uh, intimate dramas, I would say, as opposed to something this, this with on this scale. And that might actually just kind of like play in its favor. I, I'm just, I'm totally speculating, but I got to think that's just going to make it jump out to the people that normally vote on that category. Yeah. I was throwing it back to you, Frank, because I didn't know if I kind of cut you off if you had other points you were making beyond that one about the awards.
1: No, that concludes it. Uh, I don't know if we've mentioned this, but it is actually available on Netflix streaming right now. So it's very easily accessible and highly Oh yeah, I, I think I made the point at
0: the beginning. It is the, it, it's the newest movie from Netflix, but it, it's, it's, a, it's one worth noting in that like, I mean, if you're fortunate enough to like, you know, live somewhere near a theater that gets Netflix releases. And there's a couple in our area that do. I don't know if they're playing this one. It's not quite that big of a Netflix release. I would just say like, I I, I wish I could see this on a big screen. So I would I, I if anyone has the opportunity to do it, I'd, I'd be kind of curious to hear how that plays for you. Uh, Fred, anything else you want to recommend to the listeners that you've been watching recently?
1: Yeah, I usually spend too much time on this segment, so I'm going <laughs> to keep it short this time. Uh, sure. The one movie I do want to recommend, uh, it's uh, available for rent now, and I believe it's also streaming on Showtime, uh, starring one of my favorite actors and uh, Josh and my fraternity brother, John Hamm, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Confess Fletch, um, which is uh, sort of a comedy about a former journalist slash private investigator uh, who gets hired to look into the disappearance of uh, an Italian uh, millionaire and uh, his paintings that have been stolen. Uh, It's a really fun role for him because uh, the guy really should have had a big career in movies after Mad Men, one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Uh, But he's mostly been content with relatively minor supporting parts over the last few years. And this is really a role for him where he gets to show that he's charming, funny. Uh, it's a clever script. It didn't really have much um, of a run uh, in movie theaters, but uh, like I said, it's pretty easily accessible now. Um, really fun yeah. time. Uh, yeah, would recommend well, people check that one out.
0: I actually really appreciate you uh, d- in in deciding to uh, be brief. I thought you made a very smart. I, I really appreciate the recommendation that you did decide to make in in trying to limit what you said in this segment because that is one that like i just uh yeah i i just really appreciate you going there with that recommendation if you were going to only make one because that is one i wanted to see and like you said brief theatrical run and i didn't know it had made it streaming and i bought paramount plus a couple months ago because i was already paying for for showtime uh what i could get if i like bought this bundle that paramount plus did with showtime and i've only watched like two things on there so it's it's good to know that like that is something else i can do to get my money's worth because i just i i pulled it up and it was one of the first things that popped up so i'm going to be watching confess Fletch at some point in the next few weeks i bet um adam anything else you've been consuming recently you want to direct the listeners to
2: uh well since i was on the podcast not too long ago for halloween ends uh, i'll give my usual recommendations of house of the dragon and dairy girls um and in addition to that um, I did also I know it's November now, no longer uh, Halloween season. we're moving firmly into right. Thanksgiving and Christmas season. I would also recommend, um call it uh, hundred and one scariest movie moments on Shutter. Uh, I watched that recently and really enjoyed it. And then also another recommendation switching things up a little bit instead of a show or a movie. Uh, if you're interested in World War one, I a really I also would recommend, like I mentioned earlier, uh, Dan Carlin's Blueprint for Armageddon podcast series. It's phenomenal. He draws from a bunch of different sources. Uh, very detailed. You'll, you'll learn a lot. Um, and one of the sources is actually a book that I have read called A World Undone, The Story of the Great War by G.J. Meyer. Basically, it covers the entire history of World War I. It's fascinating. It's a great read. Um, can't recommend it enough if you're interested in World War I.
0: The uh, only thing I'll recommend myself is uh, I, I just because the, the other day I went to the movies and I ha, I, ha, I looked at my what was going on at AMC and it's just like I only have so many I'm about to hit a very busy stretch between work and traveling to get back home for Thanksgiving and it was just like I I, I didn't know I, I was basically down to like you know Armageddon no, I watched Armageddon time I was like am I gonna go watch Triangle of Sadness which or Banshees of Inishairian or Ticket to Paradise. And I chose Ticket to Paradise, the George Clooney, Ju- Julia Roberts vehicle, because I was just like, you know what, I, I-, I feel like just going to laugh. And I knew Banshee's Inner was kind of a comedy, but like, I'm not going to be able to do the podcast on it till a little later, so I strategically pushed that back. And I'm like, you know what, Triangle of Sadness, I'll get to that at some point, but like, I don't know if that's what I'm doing a pod on. Not necessarily doing a podcast on Ticket to Paradise either. It's exactly what you think by the trailer and it's totally delightful. And I think that's all I can really say about it. It's not the best, it's not a great movie by any means, but if you just want to go smile at the movies for an hour and a hour and 45 minutes and watch George Clooney and Julia Roberts be charming, it, you're going to get exactly what you came for and I did not regret my decision at all even if I thought maybe I should be like, you know, doing the serious awards fair thing and watching something else that might get an Oscar nomination in the international feature category with Triangle of Sadness. I'll get to that one eventually, but like I wanted to support something like Ticket to Paradise being made, and I, I felt very good about my decision. So highly recommend checking that out. Adam, anything you want to plug personally, social media wise, anything like that? I know the um any University of Miami fans there can go to your feed for some really, really uh, uh you know optimistic content, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Are you got all those me? left after the season? <laughs> oh my goodness.
2: Well, hey, look, I'll, I'll give them credit. They they really they filled the stadium for the start of the game, against FSU on Saturday. And then they quickly filed out once it became a blowout, which I really, I can't blame them for. It was a really, really bad yeah. game. But yeah, if you want to follow uh, Miami Hurricanes football or my Taylor Swift takes, you can follow me at A.B. Lichtenstein. Uh, go stream the new version of Antihero by Taylor Swift, which which features one of my favorite bands, Bleachers. Uh, it, made, it made me very happy last night when that got announced.
0: I actually did go and buy that. I'm and I'm not. I, I'm not even. I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. Not necessarily as big of a Bleachers fan as you. But I was like, you know what? Whatever. They can have my money. It's a dollar twenty nine. It's worth. It'll be worth it. Uh, I, I
2: bought. I bought it only to realize I had no way to get it onto my phone. And then at midnight, it just went on Spotify anyway. So I'm like, whatever. It's a dollar twenty nine. I'm not something in the world. But I was like, I <laughs> actually, I was so excited that I just bought it immediately without realizing that I didn't know how to get it onto my phone from the Taylor Swift store.
0: Fred, uh, you want to plug your letterbox or Twitter or anything like that?
1: Yes, please do follow me on Letterboxd. Uh, That's Fred Kolb, F-R-E-D I'll probably post my review for the 2022 version of All Quiet on the Western Front right after we record this, and then my review for the original at some point tomorrow. So if you want to read more detailed thoughts on my Uh, opinion on this movie, Uh, feel free to give me a follow there. As far as Twitter is concerned, you can also follow me there. Uh, I will probably leave once uh, Elon charges everyone money to recoup his losses (laughs) on his terrible investment. Uh, But until then, uh, you're absolutely welcome to follow me on Twitter as well. Uh, My Twitter handle is at Fred the German.
0: Adam, if the Sun Sentinel doesn't pay for you to stay verified, are you going to
2: pay Elon $8 a month? Absolutely, absolutely fucking <laughs> not. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm absolutely not. Uh there's I could buy one Starbucks drink for eight dollars and it'd be worth it way more.
0: <laughs> I, I, I I I I appreciate the stand. Uh, as usual, I'm Josh Yurnavoy, J O S H J U R N O V O Y on both Twitter and Letterboxd. The podcast Twitter is at Movie Pod. Podcast email is the Movie Pod at gmail.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Fred and Adam for joining and we'll see you next time.